Well, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go to the Gospel of John. We are in uh, John 19. Uh, if you're a guest this morning, uh, we've been going uh, through the Gospel of John, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, we started out back in January, John 1.1, and we have gotten to this place in uh, John 19 uh, where uh, Jesus is, uh, things are really tense. Things are really uh, tumultuous. And uh, so Jesus, of course, is going to the cross. And over the course of uh, this time in John 19, uh, 18 and 19 and 20, Jesus is going to go through six different trials, six different uh, trials, some of them civic trials, some of them are religious trials. And so where we're picking up this morning, um, Jesus has already been to see the Sanhedrin, and uh, he's standing before Pilate, now a civil authority. And uh, Pilate has said, okay, I, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. I, I find him not guilty. And they keep bringing up these charges over and over and over. Pilate, he's got a responsibility as a civil, uh, you know, as a, as a judge, as uh, someone in charge of that area. He can't just, you know, kill someone willy-nilly. There are rules and guidelines uh, that he has to follow. And so they keep bringing up all these false charges and accusations uh, against Jesus. And so uh, we're going to hit a lot of detail today, and uh, I'm frankly not going to address a lot of the detail because I know many of you are going through uh, this devotional and you're reading through it. And so, I, and I think Chuck Swindoll does a great job in just kind of lifting out many of these things. So, uh, how is this going for you guys? Still, still at it? Awesome. I know many of you guys are discussing this in your life groups as well. Uh, I just, I just, I'm really enjoying reading through this and uh, uh, just really being challenged and inspired. Um, well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, for this time this morning as we uh, have gathered to worship you. And Lord, we just anticipate all that you are doing in our lives and continue to do. And so, Lord, as we get to this point in time, uh, of the cross in John 19. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The cross is probably one of the most familiar images all around the world. You could travel practically anywhere on the planet and people will recognize the cross. And have an opinion about the cross. The cross is so iconic. And when many people around the world see the cross, they think of even beyond just Jesus and, and the story of Jesus and, and the sacrifice of Jesus. They, they think of Christianity. But people don't just think of Christianity. They also think of Western civilization, which is kind of interesting because the cross the, 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 the meaning behind it, it was created by the Persians, by the Iranians as a, a form of execution, a form of torture. The cross was actually created in the Middle East. But then the Romans learned about the cross as a form of execution, and they perfected it. And they said, we can do it even better. We can torture people even better than the Persians, what we know today as modern-day Iran. And so the cross becomes very iconic for all of us. And we see these crosses in so many different places in our life. This cross actually hangs in the doorway when you walk into our house. I see this practically every single day. And as Christians, the cross is so important. It's so fundamental to us that we put it everywhere, right? 
You go, you see it at a church, out on a steeple. You come inside the church and you see a couple more crosses. Some of you wear maybe even a cross necklace. We see crosses everywhere. You go to a cemetery, you see more crosses. The cross is so familiar to us. Yet at the same time, my great concern is the cross has become too familiar to us. In just a moment, I'm going to read from the Gospel of John where, where John the disciple is standing there at the foot of the cross, and he's going to describe an extraordinary detail about all that's going on. And I think our tendency, our temptation is to go, yeah, details of the cross. I know all about the cross. We can become complacent. Sometimes, you know, the saying is familiarity breeds contempt. Just like, oh yeah, the cross, the story of the cross. Jesus died on the cross. The great theologian Oswald Chambers once wrote, heaven is interested in the cross. Hell is terrified of the cross. Human beings, they mostly just ignore the cross. The cross is so important in terms of all that was going on for Jesus on that day. And several years ago, some of you, we rented out a movie theater here in town and we went and watched The Passion of the Christ. And it wasn't a fun event. It wasn't an interesting event. It wasn't, a, gosh, that's a really interesting, fun, great thing to do during Holy Week on Good Friday. I, kinda, I remember that very well, dragging myself to that theater because it was gut-wrenching. It was horrifying to sit there hour upon hour and watch Jesus be tortured, suffer, and die on a cross. And this morning, I don't have three hours and all the special effects of Hollywood to help you to step into that place of what Jesus endured on the cross. But we're going to read these words from John the disciple who was there, an eyewitness, who records many, many details of what's going on at the cross. And the reason why this is so important that we read through these details and, and pay attention to these details is it because God says, this is my plan all along. These details matter because I want you to know the cross is something that God planned, God designed, that God was in charge of every step of the way. Jesus didn't go running around, running away from those who were trying to get him and chase him down. And all of a sudden, one day they caught him. And then he has to go to the cross. Scripture tells us that Jesus willingly went to the cross. He knew what was going to happen, and yet he still did it. The cross is not this place where God goes, uh-oh, oh no, oh shoot, now what am I going to do? That's not the cross. The cross, everything, all the details were planned long in advance, even before Jesus showed up on the scene all those years ago. Aren't you glad that we worship a God, who uh, we serve a God who's not looking down on us and going, oh no, 
ah, now what do I do? There are no uh-ohs with God. God doesn't look at your life and go, oh, shoot, things are really out of control for you. I don't know what to do for you. God knows exactly what's going on in your life, and he knew exactly what was going on with the cross. He says, this is my plan, and I'm going to give you such extraordinary detail in God's word so it becomes so obvious to you that these are not accidental things. These are not just happenstance. Now, I didn't lose control. God did not lose control. He said, I am in control over everything. All these details matter, and I'm laying them out there so that you can be assured that God is still in control. Every single detail matters, and this is God's plan. Throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament, there are 300 prophecies to point to Jesus in the coming of the Messiah. Over 300. That's a big deal. God is telling us over and over and over throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah is coming, Jesus is coming, and he's coming to rescue and save you. And he goes into great detail throughout the Old Testament. And in John 19 alone, we're going to look at more than 20 different prophecies that have been fulfilled. I'm not going to hit all 20, but I'm just going to kind of lift a few out for you to think, oh yeah, that's right, God's in control. This is God's plan. God didn't lose control. Things are not out of control. Even though it looks out of control, God has a plan. So let's look at John 19, and we got a lot of verses to get through today. So uh, hang tight with me here. Uh, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis against him. Not guilty, folks. Help me out here. When Jesus came out wearing the purple crown of, uh, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify. They wanted blood. Pilate said, not guilty. They want blood. They shouted, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace, and he looked at Jesus and said, where did you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate asked? Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From that time on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, sat at the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? 
We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to, to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Golgotha was a really important place. When people heard this story of what's going on. They're going out to this place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. The Greek word for this is Karanion. And those of you who have studied the skeletal system, you know that it's, it, we get the word Karanium. This is where they're going. It's, it's a rock outface that looks like a skull. The Latin word for Golgotha is Calvarian. And you're thinking, oh, that's where we get the word Calvary that Jesus died on Calvary. It's just a Latin word for Golgotha. But when the early church leaders, those who first gathered together as Christians to worship Jesus, they're listening and recounting and hearing this story that John is laying out and describing for them in great detail. And when John says they went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, they're like, oh, wow, we know that place. We know, we can see the parallel. And if we go back in time about 2,000 years, we hear this story of Jesus, the Messiah, going out to Golgotha, out to Calvary. And it reminds us of Abram. And Abram, God came to Abram 2,000 years earlier and said, hey, I want you to sacrifice your one and only son, the one that you love. And there was Isaac carrying wood. Don't miss this, carrying wood up a mountain. Just as Jesus is in the process of carrying wood up the mountain, Golgotha. And the mountain that Isaac and Jacob were walking up is called Mount Moriah. As they're going up there, these are the words that are spoken in Genesis or written in Genesis 22:2. Then God said, "Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, also known as Golgotha. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you." 2000 years before Jesus showed up, there is another father walking with another son up the same, the very same mountain, Mount Moriah, to have his son sacrificed on that mountain. This is a prophecy, and we should not miss it. And what it's doing is it's foreshadowing, it's pointing toward the sacrifice that God will do through Jesus on the cross. Genesis 22, the, it continues on. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide and has said to this day, on the mountain the Lord will be provided. Isn't it interesting that way back in Genesis that um, the writer is pointing all the way forward. He's looking forward. It will be called the, the Lord will provide. Because you guys know this story. They're walking up the hill. Isaac says to his dad, hey, dad, where are we going? Well, we're going to make a sacrifice up on the mountain. God told us to go there. Okay, but where's the sacrifice? I've just got this wood. And Abraham says, God will provide. God's going to provide a sacrifice. And we get, they, they get up there and, and Isaac puts down the wood. 
And Abraham says, okay, I want you to sit on top of the wood. And he's like, what? And he lifts up his sword and he's getting ready to kill Isaac. And then he saw a sheep off in the thicket. God provided a substitute sacrifice on that day. And everybody knew that story. And so this is what is going on here. As Jesus is being led out, a father taking his son, his one and only son, John 3, 16, whom his, his own one and only begotten son, the one whom he loved, to sacrifice him. The early church leaders saw this parallel and said, this is unmistakable how all this is transpiring. Hey, one other thing that I think is worth bringing up in Genesis 22, 2, when God says to Abram, take your son, the one you love, Isaac, the one you love. That's the first time in the entire Bible that the word love shows up. The love of a father for a son. And we, of course, see this word love over and over. And the church leader said, oh, we can't miss this. The parallels are so close. God was telling our people 2,000 years ago that this was the place where God would make a sacrifice. Well, on Mount Moriah, this is also the, the place that uh, Abraham called the Lord will provide. The Mount Moriah that's the place where the temple was built. So from the time of Abram to David, David decided this is the mountain where we're going to build the temple. And what happens in the temple? Sacrifice. And so isn't it interesting, and of course not coincidental, that the very place where the temple was built, where, where the, the, the lambs were sacrificed for God, so that there could be a right relationship between God and his people was on this very same mountain. Second Chronicles 3.1 explains it this way. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Same place of Abram, same place now with David and his son Solomon, and of course the same place where Jesus, the paschal lamb, the sacrificial lamb, would be sacrificed. Carrying his own cross, Jesus went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. That is Mount Moriah. Continuing on verse 18. There they crucified him. With him two others, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. Pilate had no, uh, noticed prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, uh, many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered them, what I have written, I've written. Hey, rewind the clock, 33 years there was a group of, we call them wise men. We know them as magi. They came from the east. Again, probably modern-day Iran in that region. And they were traveling from afar. And they marched into Jerusalem. They went to King Herod. They said, hey, we're looking for a king. Matthew records it this way. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Isn't it interesting that people came from far, far away to find the King of the Jews? And the Jews who lived in that area, they weren't looking for him. And when he showed up, they didn't see him. And they most certainly didn't acknowledge him. But this passage from Matthew 2, make no mistake, there is a direct connection for what was posted on the cross of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. 33 years earlier, the Magi were proclaiming this. And then I think about the time just a few days before Jesus went to the cross. It was Palm Sunday. And there they were. People were celebrating. People were welcoming Jesus coming into the city. And they weren't really sure what to do. But John records it this way in John 12. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. See, they knew he was a king. Many people, they were shouting, he is a king. The Magi knew he was a king. But on that day, as Jesus is being crucified, they put a sign, Herod put a sign above him saying, hey, Pilate put a sign above him saying, hey, king of the Jews, Pilate was proclaiming what so many others had proclaimed throughout the centuries. And make no mistake about it, Jesus is a king. And he came into the world for his own people. And he said, I'm not here just for my people. I am here for the whole world. The book of Revelation describes what this kingdom is going to look like. It's in Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. On his robe and on his thigh has his name written on it, King of kings and Lord of lords. The first time Jesus came into the world as king, he came to do, get, take care of your and my sin. That was his purpose. That's why he came. He knew we couldn't save ourselves. The second time, as Revelation tells us, he's coming back. And he's not just going to be a king among all the kings. He is going to be the king among all kings. He's coming for everyone and so this is all part of God's plan. If you can see this over and over and over, these little details that we're just like, oh, these things happen. But what's behind these details, what John is telling us is that God had a plan throughout. And his plan is to let us know that God is fully in charge. God is fully in control. Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Isn't it interesting? The smallest details of Jesus' clothing. It made the Bible. You know, they're, they're, they're going to say, oh, well, let's tear it up. No, let's not tear it up. Let's cast lots. Let's throw dice to kind of figure all this out. I mean, those are, I think we can agree, those are kind of uh, minutia. Those kind of seem like detail. We just don't need to know all that, right? 
I mean, what do they do with Jesus' clothes as they're hanging him on a cross? John says, let me tell you. TMI, right? We, we just don't need to know that. But John says, no, you do need to know that. Because even in those little details, that tells you that God is still in control. God's been planning this for a long, long time. This is actually recorded in Psalm 22. That how the Messiah, that his clothes will be divided in a very specific way. And this is a very serious uh, part of Jesus' life, of course. But I think in this moment, God is like winking at us going, I'm in, I'm in control. I'm in charge. I, I think that, that this whole dividing of Jesus' clothes is a God wink. Just like, hey, see these details? I got this. It's okay, folks. I know this is really serious, and I know this is really horrible, all that's going on, but I wrote about this a thousand years, even before it happened in Psalm 22. You have to keep in mind, the crucifixion by, uh, did not exist for 300 more years. Nobody even knew what the crucifixion was, and yet there was God writing about it in Psalm 22. I love these little details that God's just over and over saying, hey, just hear these details and know, I've been planning this for a long, long time. Verse uh, 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, uh, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. Uh, and the di disciple said, Here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. I think it's really interesting that uh, throughout the course of Jesus' ministry, whenever he would feed uh, people, thousands of people would show up. When he would teach people, there were hundreds of people gathered around hearing all the stories and the parables and all that good stuff. And Jesus had this, this group of 12 these guys that he hung out with for three and a half years, doing life together, camping and eating and fishing and, and talking and, and all the things that this, this group, this small group, this life group did together. And in amidst those 12, he had the three closest ones, right? Peter, James, and John. So Jesus had all these groups of people in his life. But at the cross, in his greatest hour of need, everyone scattered. Everyone scattered like flies, except for John, the one disciple who was there with him. But notice it wasn't just John who was there at the foot of the cross. There were four ladies, four women there at the foot of the cross. His mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. I think that's significant. There's one guy there, one dude, one buddy of Jesus, and four women. I mean, don't miss this detail, folks. The women in Jesus' life mattered. They were so faithful to him. In Jesus' greatest hour of need, all the guys ran, and there were the faithful women helping and walking alongside Jesus. 
I just think that's pretty cool. And, and you know, sometimes I, I talk to other pastors and, and we talk about what's going on in our churches. And what I hear other pastors saying is, man, we got so many women involved in our church, but we just have trouble getting guys to come out. I mean, this has been true since the foot of the cross. The women have been very, very faithful. And the men oftentimes scatter. I don't think it has to be this way. I'm just saying when you show up to church and you see a lot of women and not a lot of guys, this is kind of how things have been in the church for a long, long time. And I just think guys can do better. I think we guys need to step it up a little bit more and take a more active role. But I also think you women are awesome. You showed up at the cross and you continue to show up in the life of the church. Now, if I need something done in the life of the church, you know who I'm going to call? Probably a woman. If I were to say that to you this morning, hey, we need some volunteers to do this thing after church, you know whose hands are going to go up? Probably the women. Aren't you glad we've got women in this church who are so faithful? Aren't you glad you've got women in your life who have poured into you, who have walked alongside you, who have stuck with you? It's the women. I I'm just so grateful for you ladies and your faithfulness. And I want to encourage us guys to step up our game a little bit. I mean, history is against us, right? But you women are awesome. Frankly, this is one of the reasons why I love being a part of a, a faith community that honors women. We do. You know, not all churches honor women like I think and like I think Scripture lifts them up. Many churches say only men can be pastors. I have trouble with that. And I have a trouble with that because I look at the foot of the cross and I see all the women there. You know who were the first people to show up after Jesus rose from the grave? Who were the very first people who saw him alive? The women. You know who the very first preacher after Jesus rose from the dead was? He, she went to uh, the disciples who were all hiding, remember? And she said, he is risen. That was the very first sermon preached. It was the women. I love being a part of a church, a body, where we celebrate and lift up the roles of the women in leadership. Because you guys have been carrying the church for 2,000 years. And I just think it's important that we acknowledge this, the women at the cross. And I love how Jesus uh, has this conversation between his faithful, his last disciple, and these women, and Jesus' mother, and brings them together and says, okay, guys, carry on with the church. You got to know, this is pretty controversial. To, you, maybe you know, some of you are thinking, oh, come on, this, women are just this important. You got to know that I talk to a lot of pastors. This is a really big deal how we practice ministry here at Faith Lutheran Church. Many churches, many pastors are like, I could never have women in leadership. I could never have a woman preach. No way. Thank you. Thank you for embracing how important women are. Nobody's ever come to me and said, man, I think the women in this church, uh, don't let the women in this church preach. Don't let the women in this church serve in leadership. Nobody's ever come to me and said that. Thank you. Thank you for honoring and valuing the role of women in leadership. Verse 28. 
Later, knowing that everything had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Again, these words were not first spoken by Jesus. These were spoken or written way back, King David, Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. I don't have time to go into all the details this morning, but Jesus is quoting scripture here. He's quoting the Old Testament. When he says, I am thirsty, when he says it is finished, what he is saying is God's in control. God has a plan. And it's been going on from the beginning of time. Now was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, then those of the other. When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his bones. And this goes back to Exodus 12, 46, all the way back when the whole sacrificial system began, when God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And God says, here's what I want you to do is I want you to take a lamb and I want you to bring a lamb as you're remembering how I've rescued you, how I've saved you. But take the very best lamb. If you've got a, a, a lame lamb, if you've got a, a lamb that's got some flaws or defects, don't sacrifice that lamb. Bring your best lamb and sacrifice that one. And so when, the, when we read about this in John 19, that Jesus' legs were not broken. There's a direct connection back to Exodus 12 and how the lambs, were supposed to be presented only the very best. We see this, and this is several thousand years uh, before uh, Jesus showed up on the scene. Uh, verse 34, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony. Oh, this is kind of um, strange here. I, I put a little break there. Instead, I'm going to back up to 34, sorry. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear and bringing a sudden flow of blood and water, period. Then what John does is he offers a little bit of commentary in terms of all that's going on. And I think it's a little bit weird, but then he starts referring to himself in the third person. So he says, the man who saw it, meaning John, I don't know why he didn't just write, I saw uh, all that's going on and I'm giving you my testimony. He didn't write that. He writes, the man who saw it is given testimony and his, meaning John, uh, his testimony is true. So what John's saying is, I saw it, and this testimony I'm giving you, it's true. I saw it with my own two eyes. I didn't just hear about it. I didn't read about it in a book. This wasn't hearsay. I actually saw it. And he says, the reason why I'm giving you all these details is this. He knows he tells the truth. John says, I'm telling you the truth. And I'm testifying to this so that you might believe. I saw it with my own two eyes. And I've written everything down in the Gospel of John in all these details in John 19 so that you might believe. This is why I did it. This is why I gave you all these details and help you to see all the connections to the Old Testament. Because these details 
matter. They matter, of course, so that we understand the suffering and the sacrifice that Jesus went to on a cross for us. That extraordinary pain, the ways in which he was tortured. But even more importantly, I think these details matter because it's a great reminder to you and to me that on that day, that Good Friday that Jesus was crucified, God never lost control. This was all part of God's plan. And so I want to encourage you as you go about your life and you see a cross. Certainly think about the suffering and sacrifice that Jesus died for you. But what I want you to think about even more is that this was God's plan. The execution of Jesus Christ was the execution of God's plan from the very beginning. And if God is in that much control of all the plans, all the details of Jesus' life, he's in control of your life too. As I sometimes have conversations with some of you, you share with me some of the struggles, the hardships that you're going through. I want to remind you that God understands your struggles. He understands the brokenness, the hurt, the pain, the health issues that you're dealing with. He gets it. It's part of his plan. God, you don't have cancer because God has lost control. You don't have a broken relationship because God has lost control. God is still in control. He's still sovereign. He's taking care of every single detail of your life. And what John the disciple is writing and what Jesus wants us to know is that God's got a plan for you. And we're invited to believe and to trust that God's in control. He's got it. I think that's good news. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are faithful. And as horrifying and um, awful as it is for us to uh, think about the details of the crucifixion and all that your son Jesus endured on the cross on that day, God, it was part of your plan. God, there was nothing on that day that surprised you. Nothing on that day where you thought to yourself, oh no, what do I do now? But God, that was fully part of your plan. And so God, as as much and hard as it is for us to think about and talk about the cross, the cross is a great symbol, a great reminder of your victory over death, over sin. And so God, as we journey through life, as we journey through our day today, remind us, God, that you have won. It is finished. You have taken our sin so that we can be united with you for all of eternity. Thank you, God, for that good news. Thank you, God, for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you, God, for your son, Jesus Christ, and your plan to use him for all of eternity. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.